Women Making Waves. So, Linda, for the second time this week, I actually got on my bike instead of actually getting in my car. That's not, that's not too bad, is it? For me? And is this for fitness? Is it to save money on fuel? Is it for the environment? Or is it all three? If I was going to be really honest, and I'd like to think I'm doing something for the planet, and I probably am subconsciously doing it, but I am doing it for saving money. That's what I'm doing it for, mm-hmm. because I... I drive past some of the petrol stations and I cannot believe... It's a shocker, isn't it? Yeah, the prices. And they're just going up. And I hear people are doing protests, boycotts of some of the... We won't mention particular brands, but they're boycotting some of the petrol stations because the prices are just silly, really silly. And I suppose that's probably why I've decided that I'm going to get on my bike a bit more. So maybe ways, Planet Fitness Cash. There you go. Excellent. Excellent. Mm. Well, that, that's that's really good. And I think yeah. we all need to do more for the planet, don't we? We keep hearing about yeah. things on the television and we keep hearing we're kind of running out of time. And that's yeah. really, really frightening, actually. But yeah, the bills are a huge thing. And I don't know about you. We're being really quite careful in the house as well, not to turn on the radiators all over the house. We're just really yeah. turning on the ones in the rooms that we're using. And in yeah. fact, in, in my office, because I've got screens that are heating up the place, I haven't even turned the radiator on yet. I'm just putting on a cardigan. And that's the other thing, isn't it? I've started to wear bed socks in bed, and maybe that's, I should have done that a long time ago. So I'm actually getting a really good night's sleep. Oh, really? Oh, well, we've always had a cold bedroom. You know, uh-huh. I, I have mentioned this before. We have a bedroom that I think an Eskimo would feel at home in, quite honestly. <laughs> my husband, my husband doesn't. He always says, oh, you know, you, you need you need a cold room to sleep in. And I suppose he's right to an he extent. Right. It, you know, it does he, make you absolutely. sleep better. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, uh, but there are extremes, you know, Susie. And I think we reach them sometimes. But anyway, that's another story. So... <laughs> Exactly. Maybe I, I have a hot water bottle that I keep on ah, my feet. Ah, yeah, but in the middle of the ah. night, usually I kind of wake up sweltering because ah. the it seems to go right from the soles of your feet right the way up, you know, and then ah. you end up, you know, in a, a bit of a lather. So then I've got I find my way kicking, kicking the thing away as far as I can get it. Mm. Yeah. That would probably keep me awake at night. I was having to sort of kick a water bottle. In fact, that would really irritate me. So I, I think oh, I'm oh, going to oh. keep to my bed socks. Oh, no, a hot water bottle. <laughs> Nothing can beat that, really. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But I think it's just getting used to as well. And I can't believe I'm actually saying this because 20 years ago, we we moved into a house and it was the luxury of having radiators in your home. And now, of course, they're almost... The forgotten part you don't want to put them on because they are the ones that are going to create the heat but also mm. create a big bill mm-hmm. so now you think well if we don't have the radiators on what else do we do and like you just said you put your socks on sometimes you wear a jumper mm-hmm. and actually it is quite cozy but i i can't quite seem to get one of my children to get into that and i don't know what it is but they're not really possibly because they're not paying the bills maybe that's right that's exactly it <laughs> yes yes well he's paying part of it yeah mm. yeah mm. so they're all living in different places now and they're all having to think about how much you use how yeah. when you get up in the morning when when you decide to have your dinner early part of the time or late in the evening depending on how warm the house is aware that you have where do you eat in the house that's going to be warm? That's it's right. 
It's That's a very right. interesting time, isn't it? Oh, it is. My daughter's the same. You know, they've decided in their house that they're not using the oven very much. Right. And they're using a steamer for their vegetables and, uh, you know, all, all kinds of things. And we we actually tend to use a, an air fryer. Ah, And it's yes. very good. And it's not... I always used to think an air fryer was an actual fryer. And yes, you can do chips and everything in it. But actually, there's no oil involved or anything like that. No. Mm. So it's just air. So you can actually heat up anything in it. And it's very quick. And I think it's quite cost efficient. Yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. And I know a friend has done just that and she's been trying to persuade me to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I shall be hot in pursuit of finding a second-hand air fry somewhere. Mm. But it's a good idea. Or cold in pursuit, perhaps. Yes. Um, Unless you've got your bed socks on at the time, of course. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) And on that note, we have... Some really quite interesting guests today, don't we, Linda? Indeed we do, indeed we do. We thought with COP27, very much in the news at the moment, that it would be great to make a feature of that, really. And uh, we've got some amazing people to talk to from the Cambridge University's Institute for Sustainability Leadership. We've got Zoe Arden, and she's going to be talking about the role of female leaders in the climate sphere. Very, very interesting woman. She really is. And after that, we are joined by these women, these female leaders in the climate sphere. And two of them are here. And that's Liv Anderson, founder of BioZerox. That's a carbon neutral cement. And she'll be talking about the role of women in construction. And we also have Sushma Shankar from Deep Planet and they've been doing really interesting things using satellite imagery and all kinds of gadgets to help farmers and vineyards in particular but any farmers actually to help get the best yield from their crops. So we are really looking forward to talking to these three women. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. The United Nations Climate Change Conference, better known as COP27, takes place between Sunday the 6th of November and Friday the 18th of November. Last year it was in Glasgow, but this year it takes place in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. We're going to be chatting to Zoe Arden about the importance of female leadership in the climate sphere. Thank you very much for joining us today, Zoe. Delighted to be with you. Now, you're a fellow at Cambridge University's Institute for Sustainability Leadership, CISL, and your focus is on helping people to gain the skills to lead courageously and maximise their positive influence. I love the sound of that. As well as impacting and creating stories that drive change. That's fantastic. How many female leaders are scheduled, Zoe, to attend COP27? That is a very good question. And at the moment, we don't know the answer to that. Uh, But if we look at the last COP, which was in Glasgow in 2019 that you referred to, approximately 80% of the heads of delegations were men. Um, And while we... 80%, So in other words, 155 of the 196 heads of delegation were men. Not surprising, I guess, in some respects, but really disappointing, really disappointing. 
Why do you mm. think that is, Zoe? Have you any thoughts on that? Well, firstly, we obviously have a, a lack of women across many institutions, all institutions, not just climate talks. But specifically for the climate summits, I think it's got something to do with how we describe climate change. We often perceive climate as scientific problem and as a threat to security. And science and security have traditionally been male domains, um, which obviously is a very narrow definition because this is a societal problem. It's actually uh, the biggest challenge we face when we consider humanity's survival. So we need to take it out of those boxes and allow half the population the opportunity to contribute both their lived experience, because we know women are very much at the front line um, in terms of having to deal with the, the impacts of climate change, and also have incredible expertise, creativity and innovation to contribute. And, and what we do know is that they, they contribute to, to better solutions and often more durable solutions. Zoe, you, you say, well, Linda's just introduced you, saying you're helping people gain skills to lead as well. But getting younger people to learn the skills is fantastic and really important. But when it comes to, say, moving on and women getting older and men, actually, we were talking about this earlier, actually, in another interview about women losing the confidence to move with their skills because they have other priorities as well. How how do you sustain that once you've taught people to for a skill? How do you sustain that? How do you keep that going? I don't know if it's your job or if you've seen that. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a great question. And actually, I don't talk so much about skills. What I talk about is how can we give women the confidence, the capability, the courage and the commitment to lead change? And in a way, that's software. Now, we've been talking about the hardware in terms of you know, patriarchal structures. But actually, when we think about how we're made up, and, and that's got a lot to do with education. It, it's the belief that we can contribute equally. It's the role models that we see. Who are the other women that are opening the doors to us? And it's the enabling environments that we create. You know, how do we make it possible for women to be able to juggle the multiple roles that they've got and really, really contribute? So, no, they're not rushing around. So a little example, I, I was in Cambridge yesterday and I'm sure you know there's a wonderful woman who leads up Cambridge Zero and she arrived late at the dinner so that she could go trick-or-treating with her kids. Now that's absolutely fantastic. It's being able to prioritise your children and also make it a huge contribution, which she did, a really impressive contribution uh, to this dinner talking about the work of Cambridge Zero. So those are those are just some of the both the challenges and the enablers, I would say. Yeah, we've asked this question before, and I'm interested to hear what you think about quotas, you know, about um, prioritising women for uh, workforce. How do you feel about that? Yes, I think that that is a forcing mechanism that is valuable. So very simply, for example, with COP. Why don't we mandate that the co-president of COP is a woman uh, and have two co-leaders rather than um, what has happened, which is in, in most instances, the president of COP is a man. Just taking it a step back, the, the COP that people talk about most was Paris, where there was a woman who was hugely influential in that being an absolute standout successful cop and that was Christiana Figueres and she brought her incredible 
passion and resilience and charisma to that role. We were lucky that she was an important voice at the table then. But I but I think we have to get women at the table. We have to create those role models so that, that other people can see what the possibilities are. And if quotas, that is one of the ways we need to do that, then I think we should. Well, why do you think that we do have resistance still when it comes to um, equal amount of men and women in in leadership roles? I mean, there is resistance. I'm, I'm sure I'm right in saying there is resistance. And is it because there are other countries that are more male dominated that they want that they can't relate to seeing a woman in leadership? I know that I'm stabbing at something here, but I just find that there's still resistance and I find it incredibly hard to believe this. I think you're hitting an important point there, actually, which is that you know when we look at who is making the decisions at the moment, you know, often it is men and often older white men and you know that creates a a very sort of narrow often result you know result in terms of 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 solutions and often there's a vested interest in maintaining those those kinds of power dynamics now there's some interesting studies on on conservative white males in in the US Norway that have highlighted connections between climate change denialism patriarchal beliefs and right-wing nationalism so you know this this can get quite toxic and and this isn't to to damn all men of course it's to identify the huge opportunity that exists if we bring other voices to the table not just women but also more people from the global south who are the ones who are very much on on the front line the impacts of climate change, indigenous voices, young people. I mean, look at the impact that one young woman, Greta Thunberg, has had in this arena yeah. uh, just by talking her truth. It's absolutely phenomenal. So that's why we need all voices at the table. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the the impact of climate change and women in particular. It does seem to be a fact that certainly in Africa and other places as well, I guess, women are disproportionately impacted by climate change. Yeah, absolutely. According to the UN, 80% of those impacted by climate change around the world are women. And you know, that it poses enormous threats to you know, livelihoods, health, safety, security for women and girls around the world. There's also evidence, for example, that after you know climate change crises, you know there's increased violence towards women. But and on the positive side, there are also great examples of of women leading solutions. So, for example, in the Ecuadorian Andes, indigenous women are using sustainable agriculture production and landscape management to restore the fragile ecosystem back to health after years of desertification and grazing, uh, which has left the land barren. So there's incredible wisdom that exists in these communities that actually can contribute enormously to to solutions. I think it's fascinating that you mentioned 80% of the leadership was, was men but 80% of women are adversely affected. Same number, you know, it's incredible really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, another statistic for you, again, you and women, so these are the reputable statistics, 
80% of the people displaced by climate change, because obviously climate change is, is a, a massive contributor to the, the huge migration issues we're seeing, seeing are women. But only 19% of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank board members are female. Um, so there's an incredible disparity between the women who and the people who are suffering on the front line from climate change and the numbers of women contributing to solutions and getting their voices heard. And, and just, a, just a word about this, it's not just about parity, it's about contributing to better, more durable solutions. There's some really interesting studies that when there is more female representation in national parliaments, Actually, there were more stringent climate change policies and lower carbon emissions. So there's lots of evidence that gender equality actually improves outcomes in societies you know, in relation to both the environment and also peace building efforts. Yeah. So we're talking about women in leadership. Is there a sort of an area or a start where we can bring men into this discussion, men into supporting women? I always find sometimes that we, we concentrate on the women, and rightly so, but isn't it another aspect that we have to get men on board too? Because I think we're always fighting a lost cause if it's just all the women doing all the work. Yeah, no, that's that's a, a super question, and I completely agree. And let's acknowledge that there are many, many men on board. And also worth acknowledging that actually sort of toxic male cultures, men suffer in those cultures as well. They want to be part of inclusive cultures where everybody's voice can be heard and people feel safe to contribute solutions. So yes, there are lots of men who are championing women coming to the table and also being allies for women, supporting them, speaking out. I had a wonderful conversation with a woman the other day where she said that she will always call out, you know, when there's mansplaining going on in a meeting or women's voices are not being heard. And sometimes she has women say to her afterwards, oh, I noticed that was happening. She says, I'm not interested if you t tell me afterwards that you noticed it was happening. I need your voice at the time saying we're not listening to everyone at the table. And we need to. Now, we're facing huge global challenges and we need every voice at the table to be heard um, to contribute to the solution and, and, and share their lived experience. And back to this COP27, we know that last time the, the leadership was 80% men. How can we make sure that we get more women up there and at that conference and every other conference as well? How do we do that? How do we go about that, Zoe? I think it really starts with education. Um, I think it starts with having an expectation that women can make a massive contribution and finding ways for their voices to be heard, not always coming up with these, these very combative uh, ways of having conversations, which I, I don't think are always the best ways for everyone to thrive. Uh, we talked about the possibility of, you know, why don't we have a co-president who is a woman? There are a, a number of women involved in COP, but they tend there tends to be a higher representation of women in NGOs, for example, um, and, and citizen groups. And actually, it's about how do we get more women in government positions, in leadership positions, in all aspects of society, and it absolutely starts with with education of women and girls, showing that we have expectations, 
changing the limiting beliefs and behaviors that actually we put on ourselves as a result of years and, and generations of socialization. Now, there are tremendous women leading change who we need to celebrate and make more visible. What's been a highlight for you in your role and your job? What have you seen that has really satisfied you that we, we talk about the most important things at the moment? But have, I'd like to get an insight into what one thing that's really excited you. Last year, I spent eight months creating a new course at CISL called Women Leading Change, Shaping Our Future. And we run that every quarter and we have participation of women around the globe. And what is so interesting is at the end of that eight week program, so many of the women say that what they've realized that it's not them that are broken, it's the system. And actually, when we really have our eyes open to the challenges and the barriers and also the opportunities to change, we can step into that with more confidence, courage, commitment um, and capability to be part of that change. So that's what really energises me. And I firmly believe that every single individual has the capability to lead, whether that's in their family, in their community, in their street. I find that hugely energising. And with regard to COP27, have you confidence that it will make a difference? Some of these conferences seem to be better than others. How do you feel about this one? I know it's not started yet. How do you feel? Well, I I think we need many routes to addressing climate change. And clearly COP is tremendously important. Now, I I would say it's not an option. It has to be successful. There's so much that needs to happen and needs to happen at speed. So it's not really an option of it not being successful. And I think we can all do more. Interestingly, when I was creating the Women Leading Change course, we interviewed many women and I asked them, you know, what would they have said to their younger self? And what they inevitably said was, how can we be bigger, bolder, braver and ask for more? And, you know, I think that would be advice that we could take into into COP as well. We don't have to be experts. I think perfect is the enemy of the good. And, and, and sometimes what holds people back is, you know, I'm not a client scientist. I, I don't understand the policy environment. And actually, we're all experiencing it in our day-to-day lives. Cost of food, having temperatures in the UK of 21 degrees in November, it's it's crazy. And and those are obviously changes that we can live with. It's very different if you're in Africa, for example. So I think actually it starts with listening. It starts with asking questions and it starts with sharing our own lived experience. We don't have to be experts and particularly with women, you know, often it's, you know, we think we need to get the gold star and actually we need to continue going for the North Star, which is, you know, what do we need to achieve for the planet? That's a really good place to leave it. Thank you very much, Zoe Arden, for joining us on Women Making Waves. That's been totally fascinating. Thank you. That's all we have time for today on Women Making Waves. Our thanks go to our guests, Zoe Arden, Liv Anderson and Sushma Shankar. We'd also like to thank Maeve Campbell from the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership for her help with this programme. 
We're always on the lookout to feature women living extraordinary lives. So please contact us if you know of someone we should be talking to. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at WomenMakingWaves. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website WomenMakingWaves.co.uk where you can hear all of our interviews. Thank you.